From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Susan Block, constitutional law professor at Georgetown University, joins me to discuss Russian collusion. And after that, we air my 2018 interview with law professor Jessica Levinson on the role of the special counsel and a sitting president. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. Since President Donald Trump took the oath of office on January 20th, 2017, Russia, collusion, obstruction of justice have been very much a part of the American lexicon. Sometimes it is difficult to distinguish between fact and fiction. As former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort is sentenced, it is hard to distinguish the real-life drama from the latest installment in the Jack Ryan film series. Until now, The Manchurian Candidate was a novel and a movie starring Frank Sinatra and later Denzel Washington. Now it is a metric that we can use against the backdrop of public events. And then there is a potential constitutional crisis involving the president's intention to invoke a national emergency to get his wall on the southern border built to help bring us up to speed on where we are on Russian collusion, obstruction of justice, and other matters, we welcome back Professor Susan Block. Professor Block is a constitutional law professor at Georgetown Law. Professor Susan Block, welcome back to The Public Morality. Nice to be back with you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to begin our conversation by discussing some of the ramifications of President Donald Trump declaring a national emergency in order to divert billions of dollars already allocated by Congress in other areas for the border wall. Uh, Do we have a precedent for the president taking this type of action? Uh, We do. Presidents have declared national emergencies. But one of the most memorable is when President Truman declared an emergency during the Korean War, and the Supreme Court said he did not have the authority to do that. So while presidents have done it, they've also been found to be unconstitutional moves. Hmm. Um, you, you mentioned President Truman. Where would, I'm just curious, where would President uh, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, attempt to pack the court? Would that fall into this category at all, or is it something, that's something very, very different? Uh, that's very different because he just talked about it. He never did it. Um, he threatened to do it, talked about it, um, but never took any action. So it, it never materialized in any way. Now, I just recently read um, I, uh, that there was a legal argument put forth that the fact that Congress allocated some funding, $1.3, $1.7 billion, I'm not quite sure the number, that that strengthens the president's argument for full funding um, in, in, in the court of law. I wonder, wonder how you saw that. Um, I don't see that as strengthening the president's argument. Um, and on the contrary, 
Congress is responsible for spending. And when they say a certain amount should be spent on something, then that's the amount. If they say a certain amount should not be spent, then then that governs. So the fact that the Congress has saw fit to allocate some money means that that amount can be spent, but the president cannot spend more. So it doesn't help his argument at all. Do, do you see any way, um, any angle um, in which the president may prevail on this or could prevail? I, I mean, anything's possible. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that given what he has said, given that he has been talking about doing this for a very long time and never did anything. That sort of undercuts his argument that there's an emergency. The fact that he said he didn't really have to do it undercuts his argument. So, And the fact that he's suggesting that this is really for political gain undercuts his argument. So I, I just... And the fact that Congress has expressed the desire not to spend money um, or this amount of money on the wall also undercuts his argument. So I, I think he's on the losing side of this. Hmm. And, and, and would it be fair um, to to frame this beyond President Donald Trump versus Congress? Uh, but really, the, what he's doing is really framing the executive branch versus the legislative branch, and those have and those would have long term ramifications if he were to prevail. Uh, this is definitely the executive branch uh, fighting against the legislative branch, and that's exactly how the court will see it, and it will um, be concerned about the presidency trying to undercut the legislative branch. So I, if it gets to the Supreme Court, I would predict that the Supreme Court will vote with the legislative branch on this. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Susan Block, constitutional law, Professor Georgetown Law. Professor Block, I want to move our attention ever so slightly, no pun intended, um, to Russian collusion. Okay. Uh, uh, when I I hear someone say Russian collusion on, a, say, a, a, the cable talk show du jour. I feel that they're asking the listener to fill in the blank with their personal definition. So I'm asking you, uh, Professor, what does Russian collusion mean? Well, you're right. There's, um, it's a term that doesn't have much meaning. Um, the question is, did the Trump administration and or President or Donald Trump um, conspire with the Russians to somehow affect the election, either to throw it his way or to hurt um, Hillary Clinton. Um, There's no crime of collusion. It doesn't really have a legal definition. Uh, I don't know why Trump uses it so much, except perhaps to confuse things. But um, the question is whether... Either he or his campaign conspired, i.e., worked with the Russians to influence the election. That would be a crime. Um, casually, we might call it collusion, but there's there's no legal definition for that term. So to so to throw that out is is if there's no such term, I, I'm 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 assuming 
if there's no such term and I'm saying I'm, I'm not guilty of collusion, then just by definition, I would be correct, right? If it's, I mean, that's sort of been... Um, go ahead, I'm sorry. A, I don't mean to say there's no such term as collusion. I mean, it's obviously an English word. Um, it's in our vocabulary, but it's not in the uh, federal statutes or the criminal law. There's no crime of collusion. So, yes, if you say I'm not guilty of collusion... That's true. No one is because there's no such crime. Yeah, I, the I was, crime he's talking about is conspiracy. Yeah, I was thinking more along the lines. I know that's been popularized by uh, former Mayor Rudolph Giuliani when when he he right. sort of says collusion is not a crime. So I guess in the strictest right. sense, he's correct. But that's really not the issue. Is what I hear you saying? That's right. Um, collusion is not a crime because the word's not used in the criminal statutes. But there is the word conspiracy, and I think that's, in our, you know, common parlance, collusion and conspiracy are similar. It's just that in the criminal law, they talk about conspiracy, so that's really what we should be talking about when we're talking criminal law. Since since very little of this uh, emanates, very little, if if anything, is emanating out of the special counsel's office of Robert Mueller, it seems so much of our public discourse around this is conjecture that's sort of driving the, the at least the public discourse. Is there a way to separate the talking points of various factions and understanding what's really at stake and what the press and, the, and what the special counsel is charged to do in all of this? Well, you're right that the special counsel's office has been very silent on this, and that's good. They're not supposed to say anything until they're ready to either bring charges or not bring charges. So there is a lot of speculation, uh, a lot of conjecture. And until the special prosecutor uh, issues some kind of report, we we don't know exactly what he's doing. So we, so we really don't know if, if it is, and I'm going to use your, the, the term you use, we don't know if it's, Russian conspiracy, if it's obstruction of justice, if it's some combination. We have really no idea. Is that Right. It's, it's more guessing right now on our part. <laughs> we do that pretty well. Um, <laughs> yes, we do. We've got to fill the airways. <laughs> right. Um, back in June 2018, the president's legal team suggested that the president could not obstruct justice. And that sort of harkened back for me, um, and I'm dating myself now, to the Nixon-Frost interviews. And when when Nixon famously said, when the president does it, it's not illegal. Now, to the legal novice like myself, the president cannot obstruct justice sounds absurd. Is it? It is absurd. Um, the president can, I mean, legally, he can't, because if he does obstruct justice, it's a crime. Um, and he is capable of obstructing justice, um, much the way Nixon did. And in fact, Nixon, one of the articles of impeachment was obstruction of justice. Um, so presidents can be impeached and or convicted of obstructing justice. Now, now I know this is a, a case that um, that you had some involvement with. At least you, 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 you 
had some interviews about it. The Clinton impeachment was that obstruction? Right. Was that obstruction of justice, or was that uh, how was that defined? Um, yeah, they they accused him of obstructing justice by lying about um, the Lewinsky matter, and um, he was impeached for that. And then, perjury and lying under oath is a crime, even if the president does it. And he can, and in Clinton's case, was impeached for it. In the few minutes we have left, I want to I want to follow um, not so much the Clinton trail, but I want to follow that trail because one of the things I remember one of the arguments you made for that was about impeachment is is that the one of the risks is that with the information that was being presented, if you impeach impeach on this matter, you in fact lower the bar. And I'm wondering, let's say that. It was demonstrated that President Trump, in his interview with Lester Holt, that was tantamount, what he said he fired Comey because of Russia, that was tantamount to obstruction justice. Let's assume that for a moment. Okay. But and let's, okay. Say, let's say that we also know with 95% certainty that you do not have the votes to convict in the Senate. How should the House of Representatives proceed with impeachment then? Should they go through the perfunctory act or should they hold? I mean, in terms of our body politic, our, our, our constitutional law, what would be in the best interest of the country in that, in that scenario? Uh, that's a really good question. And in my opinion, uh, what the members of the House should do when they're debating whether or not to bring articles of impeachment, and as you know, as you suggested, Bringing articles of impeachment is the first step, and then if the majority of the House votes for articles of impeachment, then it goes to the Senate for a trial, and if the president is convicted there by two-thirds, he's out. So your question was, well, what should a member of the House do? How should the member of the House approach it? And my opinion is the following. Um, If there is evidence, that the president has committed an impeachable offense, like obstructing justice. I think the House should impeach if there's enough evidence to get a conviction. Um, I, In the Clinton matter, there were some members of the House who said, well, I'm going to vote to impeach, but I don't think he should be removed from office. I don't think the Senate should convict. I disapprove of that. I think the member of the House should only vote to impeach if the member of the House believes there's enough evidence to get a conviction and removal. That doesn't mean he has to count up to two-thirds to get. In other words, if he thinks there's enough evidence, he should vote to impeach. He shouldn't, he shouldn't say, well, I'm going to just do it, but I hope they don't convict. That's different from the House member saying, um, I, I'm not sure if they'll have enough votes to convict, and therefore I won't impeach. I don't think he has to count noses in the Senate. He just should make sure there's enough evidence. Is that clear? Do you want me to no, 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 no. I, th- I think I think that's very clear. <laughs> I, I raise it. No, I think that was excellent. I, I raise it okay. because when I look at when I look at it 
politically, it, it, you know, and I'm sure you would agree with what I'm about to say in that, it seems like in matter, once matters become political, the Constitution is, is, is more of an irritant than it is as, as, as a guiding vehicle on how one should proceed. That's just my opinion. But – oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I think the Constitution – I mean, you're right. Once it gets – I mean, impeachment is a political mechanism. Um, it is a method by which the legislative body can decide that the president should be out of office. And that's a political judgment. It's not a judicial judgment. I mean, that, the question of whether or not the president should, be, should go to jail comes later, and it's, that's judicial. Um, so, by definition, impeachment is political, but it shouldn't be used um, willy-nilly. That's a really, really drastic remedy because it really overturns an election, and we should be really careful before we do that. Well, I, I, raise, I, I raise this line of thinking because I mean, because one of I, one of the interviews I saw you do around the Clinton impeachment raised this possibility that we're and there were we were in effect lowering the bar. They lowered the. Right. We, they lowered the Republican House lowered the bar then, and I'm hearing uh, talk. I mean, the way I'm hearing some of the rhetoric coming out of the Democratic Party is now you have a reversal of fortune, if you will. That now that bar is lowered, and they're prepared to to impeach regardless of w- what the Senate will or will not do. And I'm in. And yeah. so, go ahead. And it just got it just got me thinking. Is that the best thing for this republic? to proceed in that no no they should the house should only use impeachment um if they believe that there's a really good chance that there's that there could be a conviction in the senate and they definitely should only use impeachment if they're convinced there's enough evidence to convict this is slightly different in other words you can't be sure exactly what the senate's going to do so the house can only do its job, which is to begin it, to impeach it. It should only do it if it has enough evidence. If it has enough evidence, it should send it to the Senate, even if it's not sure exactly what the Senate will do. What I was objecting to in the Clinton matter is that there were members of the House who voted to impeach but did not think the president should be removed. They didn't think it warranted removal. That I think, a misuse of the impeachment power. It's, the impeachment power is a you know, political weapon that undermines an election, and it's important to use it if the president should be out of office. But if, he's not, if you don't want him out of office, then stop using that tool because it's, it's just too drastic a tool. Uh, now, it's funny because with Andrew Johnson, obviously, that was slightly different because he had replaced Lincoln and no one really liked him anyway. When he, he, right, <laughs> right. But, 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 but just one, one more thing on the, on, the, on, on, the, on the Clinton piece of it. As I recall, and you, you were much closer to it than, than I, as I recall, though, there weren't a lot of people who believed that there were the, ever the votes to convict Bill Clinton with the two-thirds majority in the Senate. That's true. I, I agree with you on that. So, so if if we use um, your thinking, which one one in which I share, if we use your line of thinking, 
the Republican House would have been well served maybe not to go forward with it because there was really little chance or no chance of getting a conviction. And that would be the wrong way to use impeachment, I guess. It was what I'm... Right. I agree with that. Yep. It's not supposed to be, as I said then, a scarlet letter. It's supposed to be a method to get rid of a president that should, that the House believes should be removed um, because he has violated the law in a really serious way. I don't think most members of the House, when they voted to impeach Clinton, thought he should be removed. They just wanted to give him a spanking. Well, aren't there other? I mean, aren't there other methods at the House's disposal that, that would give that spanking rather than in impeachment? Well, yeah, they could have passed a House resolution that said, you know, you you, you did something wrong, or however they would have said it. They could have voiced their disapproval of his behavior without threatening to remove him from office. Well, Professor Susan Block, I, I hope hope that members, uh, at least the leadership uh, of, the, of the House Democratic uh, Party, um, were listening to your sage uh, advice <laughs> on how to proceed on impeachment because um, I'm, I'm concerned, just not—, not as a partisan, I'm concerned as the way um, our republic moves forward that um, the, the word impeachment is thrown around a little too loosely. That's that. Those are my words. Those are my right. feelings. Have, yeah. I, I totally agree with you. Uh-huh. I really, I, I agree. It's a drastic remedy and it should be used very sparingly. Professor Susan Block, constitutional law professor at Georgetown University, thank you so much for joining us once again on the public morality and sharing your sage wisdom with us. My pleasure. Nice to talk to you. You're not supposed to laugh when I say that. That's a compliment. <laughs> thank well, you. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Mr. Williams. Thank, thank you. you Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Susan Block, law professor at Georgetown University. Stay tuned as we air my 2018 interview with law professor Jessica Levinson of Loyola Law School in Los Angeles on the role of the special counsel and the sitting president. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome back. We continue our conversation with my 2018 interview of law professor Jessica Levinson. Levinson is a law professor at Loyola Law School in Los Angeles, California. Professor Jessica Levinson, welcome to the Public Rally. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. We just had uh, Susan Block on from Georgetown University, uh, and I'm going to pose the same question to you that I started with her. Can President Trump be compelled to testify if issued a subpoena by Special Counsel Robert Mueller? Sure. Um, I think the answer is we don't know, but likely yes. So this question has never been tested by the United States Supreme Court, which actually indicates to you kind of in the fact that we're in uncharted waters right now. And so similar questions have certainly arisen, I mean, most recently with respect to President Clinton when he was sued by Paula Jones. And ultimately, when 
uh, subpoena was kind of threatened, he said, you know what, I'll agree to testimony. And so I think if you look at the Supreme Court precedent in this area, that the better answer is yes, the judicial branch can say, Mr. President, no person is above the law and we'll make allowances for time and place, but you do need to respond to a subpoena. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm going to I, I, here's another question uh, that I posed to um, uh, Professor Block, and I, I assure you, I'm just not going to rehash all the questions I gave to her. But but so you just said something. I want I want to ask you and get your thoughts on this because Alan Dershowitz has uh, been most notable in saying that it it that the president within his scope of duties cannot obstruct justice. Now, for those of us who are not attorneys, sounds to me. If you get 270 electoral votes for that time period, you're above the law. And I wondered how, how you saw that argument. I just don't think that argument holds water at all. I mean, I think that argument, as you basically said, is, well, look, once I become president, then everything I do is immune. And legally speaking, I can't obstruct justice. I think we know from past cases, particularly with respect to President Nixon, that people don't think that's the case. I think there is a real open question as to whether or not a sitting president can be indicted for crimes, including the crime of obstruction of justice, but that's separate from whether or not the president could have committed obstruction of justice. And I think if you look at the statute for obstruction of justice, it's a very high threshold. It's difficult to prove. But that doesn't mean that just because, you know, the chief justice of the United States swears you in, all of a sudden that means you're incapable of committing this crime. You you mentioned Nixon, and it was actually in in the Nixon-Frost interviews that President Nixon said when the president does it, it's not illegal. And everybody sort of recoiled uh, even when he said that. So, uh, And it's something that we should recoil about. I mean, I believe— strongly that there's a lot of allowances we should make for the president. I think whoever sits in the White House, it's an incredibly important position. But I also think it's important for people to know that the president is our leader, but is not outside of our legal system. And that's a very important distinction. Well, to, well, to, that, to that point, it, it, it seems uh, that one of the challenges um, for us, we the people, because this involves the president, we have difficulty separating what happens in a courtroom versus the court of public opinion. And in this scenario, can those truly be separated? Well, I certainly hope so. And that's the job of judges. And that's why I think actually it's important to make sure that judges are not subject to political pressure. And that's why, for instance, on the federal level, judges have lifetime appointments as opposed to in some states we elect judges. And the idea of appointing judges on the federal level is so that they don't have to think about the court of public opinion. So they do something which is just applying the facts to the law. And sometimes it's a matter of first impression, and they have to use their discretion and determine what they think the law requires. But that should be entirely separate from political pressure. Now, look, judges are humans too. And, you know, it's kind of strains common sense to think that they aren't aware of the current political climate. But hopefully those two things remain distinct and different. It always makes me nervous when people say, well, there's a big case that's in front of a federal judge who appointed the judge, because the assumption is 
if it's a Republican that appointed the judge, then they're going to vote in a conservative way. And if it's a Democrat that appointed the judge, they'll vote in a more liberal or progressive way. And I, I, uh, you know, in the vast majority of cases, judges aren't using their partisan ideology to make their decisions. Uh, when we do a show on ju- electing judges, uh, I live in a state where you elect judges here in North Carolina. We'll have to have you back on because that is like the bane of my existence. I just, it just seems incomprehensible. Why are we voting for judges? That just well, I mean, I I hate it in California too, and it's one of one of the many banes of my existence. And I would say that we elect judges because. We tend to, as voters, really trust ourselves, even if we have very little information about judges, and we don't like to give power away. And we don't like to say, you know what, this is better done through an appointment process, and you know, the governor in consultation with a different, another body can make this determination. But it really doesn't make a lot of sense because judges are the last stop on the train to tyranny of the majority, and they shouldn't be worried about what the majority thinks, and they shouldn't be worried about what is politically popular, and they shouldn't be worried about outside spending. And I worry that judicial elections just infuses all of those concerns into the courtroom. Is there a role, in your view, where the president could invoke executive privilege to avoid uh, testifying before a grand jury? I, so in this situation, I guess what I would say is the contours of executive privilege have not been fully defined. So the first thing we should say is it depends on a number of different things, and I hate to give you a lawyerly answer, like is a president being sued in his personal capacity or in his official capacity? Are these Is he being sued based on acts that occurred before the election or while he was in office? But And while executive privilege is broad, I don't think in this situation it would give President Trump carte blanche to say, no, you know what, I I simply am uh, immune from a subpoena. Now, the president, like everybody else in the country, can assert their Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. So we could say that the president can be subpoenaed, but then when he wants to ask questions, and a, a different issue is whether or not the president can say, I assert my Fifth Amendment right. And like everybody else, he should, if he wants to, absolutely do that. And I think that the problem for President Trump is that he has said only mobsters and liars assert the Fifth Amendment. And I would frankly love for him to make a statement in support of the Constitution and to say, this is a protection that's available to me. And on advice of counsel, I'm going to use it. Well, you know, it's interesting that you, you would bring up the Fifth Amendment here because it's sort of what we talked about earlier about, you know, the, the, the court of law and the court of public opinion. In one sense, uh, uh, I'm not speaking about President Trump right now, but just the, pres- the presidency in general, that they're sort of, they're, I guess they're in a bind because uh, there, there's a concession to be made uh, before issuing a subpoena. We, we treat presidents for good reason, somewhat differently to, to, because of the responsibilities they have. So maybe your lawyer's present. Maybe you do it video the way President Clinton did it. So we, we allow sort of that sort of leeway. But at the same time, if the president invokes his Fifth Amendment, which is his right to do, politically, that looks really bad. Oh, it looks terrible. <laughs> I mean, it looks terrible even if 
you're not President Trump and you haven't said only liars do this. And I mean, I think because the natural reaction for a number of people is, well, look, if you have nothing to hide and you didn't do anything wrong, and this was basically what President Trump said, then why would you invoke the Fifth Amendment? And there's, I guess what I would say is, President Trump has really committed to muddying the waters on this issue and to making it look politically unpalatable. But there's just simply no question that it looks terrible. It looks like something guilty people do, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, just the grand jury process, uh, for for the president or anyone um, at going through a grand jury process at the federal level, what are the potential landmines for them entering into this process? Well, I, I hate to always give you this answer, but it, the grand jury process, I mean, it depends on what the grand jury has been charged with looking at and where their investigation leads. So I think with respect to the Robert Mueller investigation, what we've seen is that the investigation is incremental and methodical, and he's taking the investigation where the evidence, meaning the people and the documents, take him. But you know, with respect to a grand jury process, I mean, this will sound almost surprising to people, but it really is supposed to be a secretive process. We happen to have found out a lot about what's happening in this case. But I guess the other thing I'd say about the grand jury process is I hope we don't ever normalize the sentence, the president under investigation by a grand jury, because this should still be extraordinary, even in these times when we talk about it all the time. And when you say a secretive process, to what extent should it be secretive? Well, I think what the grand jury is doing in terms of, I mean, what the law provides is that the grand jury process in terms of when they're issuing subpoenas and when, which documents they're asking for and when they're asking for testimony, that really all of that happens um, in the shadows. And that doesn't mean that it's not transparent. It's not designed to be transparent. Uh, what we have in this case is we have a lot of leaks. Mm. Uh, is there any way I want to I want to go back cause to the to the Fifth Amendment question uh, and take it a little further and just have you surmise on this? Is there any way, in your view, if the president um, invoked his Fifth Amendment right? We're, we're, let me just say we're assuming that we don't know. We have no information to to, to suggest otherwise. But assuming just for a moment. If he invoked it, would that would that do irreparable harm? Um, legally, probably not. It would potentially prevent him from doing irreparable harm. But politically, I think my answer for any other president would be absolutely. But President Trump has done a really good job of making the American public question the veracity of the Mueller investigation. And I think that's hugely problematic for a number of reasons. He's essentially asked us to question the integrity of the judicial system, of the Department of Justice, of the FBI. And certainly he, I mean, how many times has he used the word witch hunt with respect to the Mueller investigation? So I think for another president, it would be hugely problematic, but there's been really a concerted campaign to undermine the Mueller investigation. So I think if you can, as President Trump, if you can say, what we basically what we've heard Rudy Giuliani say this weekend, which is, look, this is a witch hunt, and so why would he ever want to subject himself to questions? Um, then at least his base, I think, will support him. 
You, you know, well, what I'm also wondering there, though, I, I wonder how, how you saw this is because I'm sure you see people who are touted on television as attorneys, people who are touted as judges, people who are, are, who are, uh, are touted of being knowledgeable about the Constitution, but, but that does not prohibit them from saying things where I'm sure you're doing OMG, uh, LOL. I mean, I mean, but these things get passed on as if they, they're accurate, and, and then we the people buy it. And so that's got to be, a, just in general, a frustration for you. Oh, I mean, it's hugely frustrating, and it bothers me to my core. And I think what Rudy Giuliani has said just this weekend has been an example of what not to do as an attorney. I mean, he said a couple of things that are so troublesome. He said, well, I don't have all the facts. I'm still getting up to speed, but here are some legal conclusions. I mean, I have news for him. Legal conclusions depend on the facts that you can prove. So that's deeply troubling. I mean, I would be so disappointed in one of my students if they ever made a statement like that. And Rudy Giuliani has also said on programs, well, here's a fact. And then later when he's confronted with the fact that that's not actually a fact, he said, well, that was just my opinion. And this is something that, in my opinion, we have seen the Trump administration do, which is conflate opinion and facts. And I find that, frankly, deeply problematic because what you're essentially doing is you're saying to society, well, statements of fact are really no different from statements of opinion. And part of this, I think, is just a broader effort by the Trump administration. But part of this is actually legally really important for President Trump because he's been sued in two different defamation cases, one by some reservos and the other by um, Stormy Daniels. And in both cases, one of the defenses to defamation is uh, that you were just expressing your opinion. So, but to get back to your question about Rudy Giuliani, I mean, or, you know, and about this issue of kind of facts and um, an opinion, I mean, I, as, as a law professor, I would just be so sad if any of my students ever went on national television and just spewed facts that were not true. I would truly feel, feel that I failed as a professor. And just, and just, and just staying on that for a moment, um, what might the uh, special counsel be thinking when you're t- or when once someone's attorney goes on national television and undercuts or contradicts their client's original message? Well, I mean, I would say it looks like the president's legal team is in turmoil, and I think that's it looks like that to the public, and my guess is it looks like that to the special counsel. So, you know, in terms of Rudy Giuliani contradicting himself and, frankly, I think promulgating misleading statements and saying he didn't say things that he did say, um, I'm not sure how much that would really affect the special counsel's investigation unless Rudy Giuliani is saying something true, like, oh, well, the President Trump reimbursed Michael Cohen for his payments to Stormy Daniel, and then he has basically walked President Trump into a potential campaign finance violation. Um, So those types of statements would be interesting to the special counsel. But I think, you know, merely the fact that the president's attorney is on national television stating at best half half truths and inconsistencies, 
I don't know that that's actually legally significant. It just looks to the special counsel like exactly what's happening, which is President Trump cannot keep a stable legal team. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Mm-hmm.